Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of Pediatric Consult. I'm your host, Dr. Jill Schaffeld, and I am excited to be sitting with our two guests today to discuss a very pertinent topic for general pediatricians. So let's jump right in and meet our two guests. Um, joining us today is Dr. Stacy Ishman and Dr. Matthew Smith from Cincinnati Children's Division of Otolaryngology. Welcome to both of you, and thanks so much for joining us. Our topic today is one that's very near and dear to the hearts of most general pediatricians, otitis media, specifically discussing recurrent acute otitis media and chronic otitis media with effusion. So if we could just share maybe a little bit about our guests. Uh, I guess maybe we'll start with Dr. Smith. How long have you been practicing? And then how long practicing at Cincinnati Children's? And maybe any special interests that you would have to share with us. So I've been in practice for four years. Uh, I did my fellowship here at Cincinnati Children's. So I've been in Cincinnati for six years. Uh, special interests of mine include uh, hiking, playing golf with my boys, uh, basically anything outdoors. And specifically within ENT, uh, I specialize in pediatric thyroid disorders and airway reconstruction. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Ishman. Hi. Um, I have been an otolaryngologist for 17 years, um, and I've been at Cincinnati Children's for nine. Um, I have a special interest in obstructive sleep apnea, but you can't be an otolaryngologist without treating ear infections. I think it doesn't matter what your special interest is, we have all treated hundreds if not thousands of kids with ear infections. Um, and my special interests outside of work um, sadly include guideline creation. <laughs> um, I'm a methodologist for our academy, um, but I also love kayaking, so I'm in the midst of that, and then figuring out what's pinging in my house, because that is what's been happening for the last week. <laughs> That's great. Um, so we appreciate both of you for you know joining us today. Like I said, I feel like this is something, as a general pediatrician myself, um, if I have a day that goes by and I don't see an otitis media in the office, it's a very, oh, this was a strange day. I went, I got through an entire day and I didn't see an ear infection, you know, kind of. That's the day for us, too. It's a strange day for us, too. <laughs> so, I would say if we didn't see maybe 25% of our patients uh, with ear infections, it would be an odd day. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely very pertinent topic. Um, and so just initially want to get started just in discussing the different types of otitis uh, media, specifically recurrent acute otitis, which you know I would define as a general pediatrician as recurrent episodes of infection or inflammation within the middle ear space that's happening over and over again, I guess is kind of a, a nice, just basic way to state it, as opposed to chronic otitis, which is just you know persistence of fluid within the middle ear space, not clearing. And I know there's a little bit of defining that takes place, you know, for chronic otitis. It's um, more than three months in duration is what I've heard kind of tossed around. But just curious and kind of how you would describe, you know, the difference between those two conditions and kind of what to look for as a general pediatrician. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in regards to recurrent acute otitis media are recurrent acute infections. You're going to see pus in the middle ear space, you're going to see a bulging eardrum, you're going to have other signs and symptoms associated with it. 
severe ear pain, potentially fever. Uh, you might even see some redness around the ear as well if it's starting to spread elsewhere. Whereas chronic otitis media with effusion is just the persistence of some fluid there. It's gonna probably look like an amber color uh, or even it might even look a little bit mucoid, but it's going to be without necessarily that those fevers, those other infectious type symptoms. They still might have some ear pain associated with chronic otitis media with effusion, but you're not seeing that acute infection that's there. That was a great point. I didn't think about the clinical aspect of just the symptoms you know, that, that we would see, you know, the, like you said, typically much more pain, often associated with fevers, often maybe following an upper respiratory infection or, you know, five to seven days in when we would typically see those episodes of recurrent acute otitis media. And the other thing I would add is that hearing loss is the other thing really to keep in mind. And I think that's a differentiator we all pay attention to and is one of the things that might make it more common for you to think about sending a kid to see one of us is whether or not hearing loss is part of what's going on, especially with the recurrent issues or whether are long-term issues or somebody with baseline hearing loss who might be having recurrent infections. And so speech delay, hearing loss, or some of the other risk factors that make speech and language a bigger issue for kids. I appreciate that in terms of the development and the hearing loss and the speech delay. I know it's something as a general pediatrician I always kind of keep in the back of my mind, um, even just age of the child as I'm referring, you know, if I have a maybe nine to 15 month old and, you know, they're having kind of more recurrent, yes, you know, I may look at referring them sooner because they're in that crucial speech development age where, you know, I'm thinking, goodness, if we lose, you know, six months of speech development here, it's going to be a lot different than, you know, maybe for a four to six month old or even slightly older. So that's a interesting thing and, and a very important thing, I think, to keep in mind. Just, you know, and thought a little bit kind of in discussing the uh, pathogenesis of how ear infections occur, you know, if one of you would be interested in discussing the anatomy, how it occurs, maybe factors that go into play. We've, you know, talk about sometimes large adenoids versus just eustachian tube dysfunction in general, um, different things that could obstruct, and, and then maybe even some risk factors. Um, things that that we might look for in the history as a general pediatrician that would put these kids kind of more at risk for developing um, recurrent otitis or chronic otitis. Yeah, absolutely. From an anatomy perspective, uh, and it's something that I always talk uh, with parents about, is like you mentioned, the eustachian tube. So in kids, it's going to be a little bit shorter, flatter, narrower. It's going to be a little bit more uh, horizontal as well. And I describe it to parents as kind of being like a coffee straw. And so when you get some of this thicker fluid that develops within the middle ear space from an acute infection, whether it is uh, recurrent, uh, recurrent acute otitis media or chronic otitis media with effusion, when you've got that thick gel or glue-like fluid that's sitting there behind the eardrum in the middle ear space, imagine trying to push that through a coffee straw. It's just not going to Uh, work that well. And so at that point, that's when we'll think about uh, putting ear tubes in in order to drain that fluid because that fluid can sit there because it uh, sometimes does not uh, adequately clear through that small eustachian tube. Thankfully, as kids uh, age, 
that your station tube gets a little bit bigger, gets a little bit more vertical, and usually by the time around five, six, seven, eight years of age, somewhere in there, it'll become more of an adult size and position, and that's why we see around that time ear infections being less of an issue. But if they're not able to clear that fluid that's in there, that's a risk factor for infections because bacteria like dark, warm, moist places, and that's what uh, is ultimately the, the cause of that recurrent acute otitis media. You mentioned risk factors. There are two big risk factors that we think of. Exposure to other kids in daycare and smoking. Secondhand smoke uh, can sometimes uh, impede the mucociliary clearance of the uh, sinonasal tract or even the middle ear space in the eustachian tube. And so those are two big risk factors that we look for in kids that are having uh, recurrent ear problems. What do you think about family history? Yeah, family history is something that, depending on what kind of family history we're talking about, whether it be uh, persistent hearing loss, uh, other type of craniofacial syndromes, just having a family history of ear infections to me doesn't scream, oh, that's necessarily genetic. There's been uh, some associations with uh, recurrent uh, ear infections and family history, but nothing definitive that said, oh, if you have uh, two parents that have had problems with ear infections in the past, you're going to necessarily have it. I, I think that's a great point to bring up. I do often think, just in general practice, that you know, sometimes hearing parents say, I've had a history of tubes, that you know, maybe, maybe there's anatomy portion of it. I mean, maybe those tubes are even smaller or more horizontal, and maybe that runs in families. But I think to speak to your point, Dr. Smith, that's a very hard thing to say as well because of the commonality. You know, yeah. because of how many we see, is is it more frequency versus truly genetics? Um, so I think that's an interesting thing and um, something to consider for sure. But, you know, definitely the two big risk factors of the secondhand smoke and then the, you know, involvement in daycare makes perfect sense. So. Yeah, and I think those assume typical kids, right? Correct. So. The other things we think about is kids who have high developmental risk because of craniofacial issues or developmental issues. So if they have trisomy 21 or um, cleft palate, those are definitely going to be issues. If they have permanent hearing loss, you're going to be at much more, um, much more tuned to whether or not they have ear infections. And then if they have autism or autism spectrum disorder, you're going to be much more concerned about them being at risk already for speech and language delays. Absolutely. So to kind of uh, move on and talk about treatment um, specifically, um, I do feel like bread and butter pediatrics, you know, we all kind of know first line would be amoxicillin, 80 to 100 megs per kg per day, divided BID. Um, and then I think current guidelines say if they haven't had amoxicillin within 30 days, it's okay to use it again for an additional episode of acute otitis media. Um, Augmentin, obviously, as well as ceftonir um, are very common choices as well, um, which I would love for you guys to speak a bit, just if there's any anything to add and what I already said. Um, but also if there's any, you know, I think you see in general practice, sometimes pediatricians just grabbing at straws, like they've had so many, should I try something else besides these typical top three? You know, is there any benefit to trying a different type of antibiotic, something for, you know, broader coverage or just different coverage? 
Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's a really difficult situation to be in because you have a very vulnerable uh, patient that's in there, a very vulnerable family who obviously has been affected uh, significantly at this point. If you're are, if you've already gone through the standard treatment for ear infections, and I would say at that point, that's when I would start thinking about a referral to uh, ear, nose, and throat specialist because it might be time to think about putting ear tubes in place. As far as other antibiotic choices, like you mentioned, Augmentin, some of the other cephalosporins like ceftonir, cefpidoxime, uh, and even going up to ceftriaxone injections. Sometimes we'll try other things like Bactrim uh, if we're thinking that there might be some type of MRSA component or anything like that. Uh, we generally try to avoid clindamycin if we can, just because of some of the GI side effects from that, but that's another medication that sometimes we will use. But I also would go back to the first point that if we're at that point that we're really exhausting our antibiotic coverage, then that's when I would start thinking about some type of surgical intervention so that we can uh, more directly deliver uh, antibiotics such as antibiotic eardrops to that area in order to help treat that infection. So one of the nice things about the update of the otitis media with the fusion guideline, I think that's more what you're, you're talking about here, although I guess recurrent otitis would be reasonable too, is they talked a lot about shared decision-making with families. And I think it's reasonable to talk about ear tubes. It's also reasonable for families to say they're not interested in surgical options and they want to consider either observation or they want to consider um, antibiotic treatment for recurrent otitis media, acute otitis media. Um, and I think all of those options that you're talking about make a lot of sense um, in terms of, of treatment options and waiting 30 days and being able to try amoxicillin again because amoxicillin works a lot. Um, and clindamycin doesn't just have GI side effects, but it tastes terrible. <laughs> so yes. you can't always get people to take it. Um, and so I, I also think the importance of shared decision making is really important in the pediatrician office. Talk about whether you're willing to consider it. You know, it's perfectly fine to send them to an otolaryngologist so we can talk about the pros and the cons of it. And many of the kids who walk in my office choose not to get ear tubes and we're perfectly happy to have that conversation also. Um, there is a huge advantage to switching from being able to use an oral antibiotic to an antibiotic drop that goes directly into the ear and doesn't have the GI side effects. But that isn't a good enough reason for everybody to have a surgery if they would prefer not to do that. And so um, that's the other nice thing about being able to have that conversation either in your office or in an ENT office is that, that we can talk through that. I love that you brought that up because that kind of takes me into, you know, I, I would love to discuss, but I think we have to be careful when we discuss this, you know, some of the guidelines in terms of how many episodes of acute otitis and what time frame generally do we, you know, should we refer as general pediatricians to um, the ENT doctors versus um, even just how long, what time frame for chronic otitis media should we look for referring? And I say that because I think that was a great kind of work in to this question because these are guidelines they're not black and white, right? Yeah. They are not cut and dry for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I, I agree. I think that talking to families and knowing that it's not one size fits all mm -hmm. and everybody's situation's a little bit different and their comfort level is a little bit different and really just kind of being open to discuss that with them and say, hey, the, these are the guidelines. Let's talk about what works for you and what works you know, for the patient as well. Yeah, and they're minimums, right? So nobody says because you had three ear infect recurrent otitis media diffusion that you have to go see an ENT to get an evaluation for ear tubes. 
or that you've had three months duration, which is really the sort of minimums for those two conditions. Um, but they do say you should be evaluated regularly if you've had those by either an ENT or a pediatrician or a family practice doctor or whomever your designee is for your healthcare provider, because we know that there are risks, whether it's for hearing or for long-term infectious complications. And so um, one of the things they've added to some of these guidelines is to make sure that you do have that long-term follow-up. Um, so I, I think those are sort of the minimums that we have and our guidelines have been reaffirmed a couple times and those numbers haven't really changed. Um, but the need to have those conversations, I think, has been greatly reaffirmed. Absolutely. And, and like Dr. Ishman said, they're just numbers because sometimes there are other things that are going on uh, and things that we will talk about, such as, like she mentioned, complications associated with acute otitis media because there are definitely complications that can occur, such as a subperiosteal abscess or mastoiditis or God forbid, meningitis. I mean, there, there are some very serious things and that's why we take it so seriously when kids are having these recurrent problems because we see it uh, on our end, you see it on your end, as far as some of these complications that come from what some would just say, oh, it's just an ear infection. Well, that ear infection is uh, right next to some very important structures. And so we wanna make sure that we're taking care of those kids in a very appropriate fashion. Right. I mean, the kids with cochlear implantation, they made um, a change in that guideline to say, you know, you don't need three ear infections for us to put an ear tube in early because we don't want to put that cochlear implant at risk. So there's obviously going to be things where we have to keep, keep other things in mind. We're not going to put your hearing at risk. Definitely. So in general, three episodes within six months mm -hmm. is, is current guidelines. And then for chronic otitis, three months of persistent fluid to at least have the referral, see the specialist. Um, just thoughts about, specifically with chronic otitis, um, kind of that three-month window. At three months, you know, we refer to one of you, and what are you specifically looking for? How long will you kind of let that fluid go before we say, we need tubes? I think it depends on what are the... Uh, symptoms that the patient is having. So the big obvious thing that we're looking for is hearing loss. And that's something if you have the ability in your office to even do uh, tympanometry or even uh, a, health, a hearing screen uh, is something that can alert you to, you know what, they're not hearing that well because that's the biggest thing that we want to avoid is prolonged hearing loss in these kids. And when we're talking about hearing loss, we're talking about a conductive hearing loss due to that fluid. Sometimes kids can have other hearing losses, such as sensory neural hearing loss as well. And so that fluid can complicate that as well. And so we're wanting to make sure that we don't uh, prolong any type of hearing loss that can then lead to speech delay and some other developmental problems within these kids. So that's the big one that we're looking for. Sometimes they can just have severe pain with it, even though, there might, even though they might not be having recurrent acute infection, sometimes that fluid there is enough pain that it's affecting their daily life. And that's something else that needs to be considered when we're evaluating these kids. The other thing to keep in mind is they may be having speech and language issues. They may be having balance issues. Mm -hmm. There can be vertigo. It may show up as something like clumsiness, which is a little bit harder to differentiate. Um, but so those are the other things that we sometimes pay attention to. Definitely. Just 
kind of talking about treatment, and I know I'm circling back around a little bit, but what are your thoughts with um, kids who maybe have an amoxicillin allergy? So it takes, you know, amoxicillin as well as Augmentin kind of off the plate, right? It's, you know, you, you wow, we have ceftonir and that's really about it. What are your recommendations in that scenario? Um, things you might, you know, recommend to families or recommend to general pediatricians with treatment when a child does have an amoxicillin or a penicillin allergy? I think the first thing is just to confirm that they actually have an allergy to penicillin. One of the uh, great things recently has been the addition of the PATS uh, service here at Cincinnati Children's, uh, which is the penicillin allergy testing service. Uh, and that is something that I've utilized uh, quite a bit with my patients to confirm, do they or do they not have a true penicillin allergy? Because if they don't, then that's something that opens up a door again to be able to provide good treatment. In those children that do have true uh, penicillin allergies, then like you said, it does limit treatment options. And so if we're running out, just like we talked about before, and getting to those second, third, fourth line options, at that point, if they're still having those recurrent infections, then it's thinking about putting in ear tubes or having that discussion with parents about what are some of the alternatives that we can try in order to best treat that infection. Just like Dr. Ishman talked about, being able to apply topical uh, eardrops through an ear tube can sometimes be really effective in those kids that have limited treatment options. Our practice support tool that is recommend Bactrim as our, as our recommendation as a backup. Perfect. Thank you. Also kind of thinking about other scenarios that might happen after ear tubes have been placed. You know, we've, we often will see children at the pediatrician's office, they have ear tubes in place. You know, parents are coming in and saying, well, they still have drainage, they still have this thick fluid, and how, why are they still getting infections if these ear tubes are, are in place? And, and, you know, what should we do about this? Um, just kind of speaking a little bit to the chronic odoria that occurs post-ear tube placement and kind of as general pediatricians, how we should advise and how we should guide parents in terms of expectations for what they should see after, you know, ear tubes are placed and what's common to see and what's okay to yeah. see. Yeah, so there's a couple different studies out there. The Netherlands, which is a nice centralized system, so tracks their data really well, um, found that about 3% of kids have chronic drainage after they have ear tubes placed, and about 10% of kids have some at some point. I think in up to 25% of kids report at least one time they'll have drainage. So it's not uncommon at least once to have drainage when you have your tubes placed. Um, so it's really important that we tell people it doesn't mean you'll never get drainage or an ear infection ever again just because you have tubes in place. It just means that we can treat them usually through your ear canal instead of having to do a systemic antibiotic. Um, we tend to use a number of different um, antibiotics we use to ear. Some people use ofloxacin. Ciprodex is used very commonly at this institution or you can use just Cipro. Um, there's a number of other solutions that are used. I don't know if you have a favorite one in your practice. All of those. Okay. <laughs> Depending on insurance coverage, yeah, typically. Yes. That's, so. that's a lot of what yes. it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, but those, those tend to be the kinds of medications we use, um, and they work very well for, for these kinds of, of issues. But it's not uncommon for you to have at least one time where that happens. Um, one of the things that's important, though, is we used to tell everybody never to get water in your ears to try and avoid it. And in fact, 
our latest recommendations, uh, there's a new guideline in 2022 about getting ear tubes placed from the American Academy of Otolaryngology, and they actually recommend against water precautions. Do not worry about wearing plugs. Don't worry about going in the pool. Don't avoid dunking your head in the tub as long as it's clean water. So that's really nice because 15, 20 years ago, we used to, you know, not allow kids to go in the pool. Right. Um, Absolutely. So it's really nice that we're, we're finally recognizing that that's not necessary and probably isn't really significantly contributing to that kind of chronic drainage. A great thing to be able to tell parents, you yeah. know, that's, that's a huge bonus that, yeah. hey, you don't really have to change, you know, any of your normal day-to-day activities either, which is, I think that's a wonderful benefit. Yeah, so. absolutely. And then I think getting back to what Dr. Ishman uh, mentioned earlier in regards to setting expectations with parents, no matter what we do, that's how we can avoid a lot of problems later. And so something that I'm always very clear when we're discussing about whether or not to or to not put ear tubes in is that it might not change the number of infections that you're having. Uh, I think it's, it's been very clearly documented in some larger studies that there's actually no statistically significant difference in the number of infections that you have before or after ear tubes. The difference is there's going to be less pain because you're not going to necessarily have that pressure building up because that fluid is going to be able to go through the tube. So that's one thing that I try to explain to parents, whether before getting ear tubes or even after, like you said, when they're saying, well, where's all this drainage coming from? That's what used to be built up behind the eardrum. And that's what was leading to a lot of the pain. And so they're doing their job. They're letting that fluid out. And then that way we're able to to treat it as well. Thank you. I, I think those are wonderful points. Um, I did want to touch just a little bit on what I know is probably a pet peeve for all ENT specialists is the treatment occasionally, probably more often than should be seen, of a child who has ear tubes in place with an oral antibiotic. Um, when we know the whole not the whole, but the huge uh, benefit and one of the main purposes of having those ear tubes in place would be to be able to treat with an antibiotic eardrop as opposed to having, you know, an oral medicine. So are there any um, circumstances where that does make sense? And is that something kind of that, that you see commonly or just, you know, if you could speak a little bit to that? I mean, I would say we do occasionally use them. Um, we use them especially if there's a complication of otitis media, which is rare, but if your tube gets plugged and it's not functioning, it makes sense. Um, if, in fact, you've been using multiple oral, I'm sorry, topical antibiotics and they're not working, you may add one. If there's another reason that you're treating with an oral antibiotic, you know, you have an otitis externa, you have a cellulitis somewhere else, you know, it may be something that you're treating two things at once. Um, but for the most part, I find that it's usually um, just maybe a lack of understanding uh, that it's really not as effective. There are actually studies that show that the drops were, work more quickly than an oral antibiotic because the amount of antibiotic that you're getting directly to the site of infection is higher when you use a topical antibiotic directly to the ear than if you have to use a systemic antibiotic that has to go through your whole system to try and go through your bloodstream and get to your ear. Actually, makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think one of the things that's uh, difficult sometimes is when you look at a kid and and you basically just see a bunch of uh, pus or snot-like drainage uh, coming from that ear tube. And the question is, 
are these drops even being effective? And that, that's, that's definitely a, a little bit difficult thing to know what to do. I'll tell you, if a kid shows up to my clinic and they have that, typically what I'm doing is I'm underneath the microscope suctioning out that fluid because I wanna make sure that those eardrops that go in are actually getting in. I've also seen kids sometimes that won't tolerate suctioning in the office and we will just start them on eardrops and not necessarily put them on oral antibiotics and they get better with the eardrops. I think the key is what is the follow-up afterwards, after initiating any type of treatment, what is the follow-up? So I would say our default is definitely eardrops for that, even if it looks like there's a bunch of fluid and stuff sitting in the ear canal, but it's making sure two, three, four days later that it's actually starting to make a difference. Because if it's not, that's when it's definitely appropriate to get something else on board, such as an oral antibiotic. Definitely something we see in the office a lot um, and don't have all the suction available to be able to completely clear out. But you know, sometimes I say, gosh, if there's this much drainage, I know that ear tube's functioning, right? It's, you know, even if I can't see it past all that drainage, yeah, you know, point. that's just, it has to be doing its job if I'm seeing that much coming out of the middle ear space. So, so if we're talking about pet peeves. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so for Titus meter with effusion, the other thing that we will often see is treatment with antihistamines for Titus meter with effusion. Um, nasal steroids um, and or antibiotics, none of which have been shown to be effective for otitis media with effusion. And so that's if you have other reasons to use those for other conditions, more power to you. But for just otitis media with effusion, really those are not effective. I very frequently see people who've been treated, especially in urgent cares, not as much from pediatricians or family practice doctors, for otitis media with effusion it is a clear effusion with an antibiotic. It is not going to clear anything, and then you have to deal with all the side effects from the antibiotic. So, I'm going to nitpick at this just a little bit. Okay. And this is a probably a slightly different scenario, but I just yeah, go interested. Ahead. And Matt, occasionally, any, oh sorry. Oh, I just want to make sure Matt didn't have any other thoughts on that before. No, okay. I, I I think it, it. I think the key thing is is it. Are you just treating the effusion? because if there are other symptoms that go with it, such as nasal obstruction or difficulty breathing through the nose, definitely, because that is something where some of those other treatments, such as a nasal steroid or such as an antihistamine, Stole can my help. thunder here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay, that's great. But, 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 the, but the key is, oh, they looked in my ear, they said there was some fluid. Okay, was there anything else? No, that is not, that, that is a structural problem. That is not an infectious problem. And I think that's what it comes down to with chronic otitis media with effusion versus recurrent acute otitis media is one is a functional one is one is a functional structural problem and one is an infectious problem. And so being clear about the treatment for those is totally different. Thank you. That is exactly where I was going with that is just I often see maybe in the three to eight year range in the office, you know, kids come in, they're having some recurrent otitis, but they tend to have a lot of, you know, nasal congestion or maybe other symptoms, snoring at nighttime, other things where I might think, mm, do they, are their adenoids a little big? Do they have, you know, something else going on here? 
And I will occasionally feel like I have a little bit of success doing a nasal steroid Mm -hmm. or something like that, which is a little bit different. And that's why I said, I'm going to nitpick just a little bit here. Um, But I think that's a, that point is very well taken, you know, that would just be, you know, a very specific case where they're having additional symptoms besides just the effusions. Yeah. And I agree completely. If you're treating a second indication, you might in fact find that the effusions clearing because you're treating something like blockage of the eustachian tube by an adenoid. Um, but if it's, if it's just an effusion um, without any nasal obstruction or any snoring, uh, that's the case I was talking about. Perfect. Well, um, I cannot think of anything else that we haven't covered from a general, general pediatrician standpoint. Um, we've really kind of gone through treatment, additional conditions to consider, um, you know, when to refer, Um, really kind of touched on the guidelines. Is there anything else that either one of you would like to share, anything we've not touched on that you feel is important for the general pediatrician to? I think one thing is just to put out there that all of us are always more than welcome to chat or talk about a difficult situation and stuff. Uh, We're always very accessible uh, to be able to get back uh, with you. And so if there ever is a question about a child that you're seeing in the office, uh, using the priority link uh, is a a great tool uh, to be able to get access. Uh, If you do have a question with us, if there was a specific uh, patient, uh, email is a great way uh, to get a hold of us as well. Um, but I, I, I just put that out there so that so that uh, clinicians know that we we are very accessible. We do enjoy uh, interacting uh, with our other uh, clinicians that are out there. I'm going to make one one more plea. Actually, um, the other thing in the new guidelines, which I think is really useful, and I see a lot from patients, is people got ear tubes and never followed up with anybody ever mm-hmm. again. Um, whether it's either a pediatrician or an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And so one of the things in the guidelines they recommend is to follow up every three to six months or at least within three months um, with either an ENT or their designee. And the designee is absolutely a primary care doctor. So please look in the ears. Please check the tubes. um, Make sure you're looking periodically to see if the tubes have come out um, every once in a while. One of the complications is they go fall into the middle ear. Um, that's not always a big issue that we have to do something about. We should, we, we should be aware of it. Sometimes they're there for years and they could be causing issues like chronic ear drainage. Um, and so they usually shouldn't be there for more than three years or else we talk to people about whether they should be removed. Um, so please do follow them over time, whether you're sending them back to an ear, nose, and throat doctor or they're taking care of them in your office. And a lot of times we'll, we'll stress to patients about following up with us, but life gets in the way sometimes and, 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 and people forget. And so that's why having that central contact with their primary care provider is so important so that if there is a problem, they can get back in to see us. One little thing that listening to you, Dr. Ishman, that it made me think of was a, a question I actually get fairly commonly in the office is, child's older, they haven't had any drainage or infections in their tubes in years. The tubes have been in for say four years and parents will say, uh, they haven't come out. And I generally say, that's fine. You know, it's okay. Is there any certain time point that you would say, Hey gosh, yes. If these tubes have been in for three years and they haven't come out, or if they've, you know, been in for this long, 
we would remove them or even with a say like a persistent perforation after an ear tube has fallen out at what time frame as a pediatrician should we look to send these folks back to you and say hey you know so three years is usually the time frame I use assuming they're doing well they're not having ear infections anymore it's so much easier if one's out and one's in because we can see what the other ear is doing and if the the one oh, ear yeah. is um, got good temps. Um, Would have ever if thought it's about moving that. Moving well, Makes you sense. know, um, if they're both if they're both in, it's not quite as easy to see if the if the pressure is quite as good as it should be behind the eardrum. But if they haven't had anything for years um, and they're doing well, um, three years is usually my time frame, and then we can talk about. Um, especially if it's perfs on both sides, addressing one to make sure that they're going to do well um, and then considering going back and doing the other side. But Matt, please talk about your thoughts. Same thing. Three years is uh, my general uh, cutoff as well. And the other thing that I'm looking for is the age of the child as well. So let's say you put tubes in in a one-year-old and they're four and they still have them in place. That's a little bit more tricky, especially if they have both tubes in place, like Dr. Isham was mentioning the body's usually pretty symmetric. And so if you see on one side that the eustachian tube is working, most of the time the other eustachian tube is gonna work well. So that's that's easy. But when they're both in place, then it's having that discussion with the parents and it just comes back to, again, setting expectations and involving them in that shared decision-making model and saying, you know what? We could take these out since we haven't had infections in years, but in taking them out, there could be still some eustachian tube problems afterwards and we might have to go back in. Maybe that's a child where even though our academy guidelines are that you don't have to use earplugs when you're in a pool or the bath or or whatever as long as it's clean water, but sometimes I'll have patients where just the temperature of the water getting in there causes them pain and so they will use earplugs. So getting back to, they're like, man, I just wish my kid could go in the pool without using earplugs. And that's something that we talk about because then we might talk about taking those ear tubes out and patching that up. As far as perforations in the eardrum, if they're not having hearing loss associated with that, and that's something that we will look at uh, when uh, kids come in to our office to evaluate an eardrum perforation, If there's no hearing loss or other uh, symptoms with it, then a lot of times we just follow them. Because if you don't have any symptoms from that, what are you gonna gain with doing a surgery? I mean, it might look better, but Mm -hmm. if it's not not affecting their daily life, then we don't necessarily need to fix it. And so I think thinking about all those uh, uh, symptoms that they might have or figuring out why they want them out, that's the key part. I like how you said they may look better because it only really looks better to the pediatrician. Like, Correct. That's what I was thinking. Good yeah. thing you can't see your own if eardrum, you're right? If you somebody's eardrum, then you're pretty close and personal. Exactly. No, I thought the same thing. That's funny. Yeah, I think we've we've really covered uh, covered pretty much everything I can think of that a general pediatrician would see. Um, I did want to mention, just circle back around a little bit and mention the... Um, Pat's Clinic for amoxicillin allergies. We have a really nice community practice support tool for that in terms of when to refer and um, just for anyone listening to, you know, that's a great resource to have as well. Um, But I very much appreciate both of you joining us today. It's been um, 
really fun and enjoyable time. And I think we've got some great information and some good guidelines for um, general pediatricians. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank uh, thanks for having us. And for all our listeners, please access the Pediatric Consult um, podcast website that will have links to all the community practice support tools as well as um, access to the questions for CME credit for this event.